welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. In August 2022, the American College of Chess Physicians published the 10th edition of the Clinical Practice Guideline for the Perioperative Management of Antithrombotic Therapy. The guidelines address the need for heparin bridging during the perioperative interruption of warfarin and recommended against bridging in patients receiving warfarin for AFib, venous thromboembolism, or those with mechanical heart valves. In practice, the decision to bridge is complex, requiring clinicians to balance patient and disease-specific bleeding and thromboembolic factors. To help us bridge that gap, we have Dr. Mei Zheng joining us to review limitations in existing literature and to help us identify key patient and disease-specific risk factors to guide anticoagulation management in the periprocedural setting. So over 8 million people in the U.S. take an anticoagulant, and of those, 20% of them will require a surgery every year. Managing anticoagulation in the perioperative setting requires us to carefully balance between a patient's thromboembolic risk and their bleeding risk. And managing warfarin is particularly tricky because warfarin is often held five days before a procedure. This creates a long period of time without warfarin, and we might consider bridging anticoagulation using a heparin product. Heparin bridging, however, might, might decrease our thromboembolic risk, but in turn, it might increase our bleeding risk. So to help us manage this clinical balance, the American College of Chest Physicians recently updated their guidelines on perioperative management of anticoagulation. And today we're gonna to look at some of their key recommendations to decide what the evidence says and how to apply it to make a specific patient decision of whether or not we should bridge. I wanna start off by assessing our audience's baseline of where everyone's at with bridging. So we'll start off with this patient case. You have a 67-year-old female with a history of a mechanical bileaflet aortic valve replacement in 2013, hypertension, and type two diabetes. She's scheduled for a surgery that will require her to hold her warfarin five days in advance. So looking at this patient here, take out your poll everywhere and tell me, do you think this patient should receive perioperative bridging? Please click where on the range you think this patient falls, um, and then we'll review the answers. All right, so we've got some results uh, rolling in, and we kind of see a whole range of where people are falling for deciding whether or not to bridge in this patient. So we're going to revisit this patient case at the very end of the presentation and see if any opinions have changed or whether we get a more definitive answer. Before we get back to that case, today we're going to look at key bleeding and clotting risks in the periop setting. We'll look at the evidence for bridging in atrial fibrillation, venous thromboembolism, and mechanical valves, and we'll apply all of that information back to our patient case at the end of the presentation. So when you have a patient who is anticoagulated and going to have a surgery, we have to carefully weigh both their bleeding risks and their thromboembolic risks. On the bleeding side, a patient has increased bleed risk in the periop setting due to the invasive nature of the surgery that's occurring. 
Different surgeries will have different levels of bleed risk. And although there's no official stratification of what surgeries are high or low risk, this is an example from the guidelines that lays out what procedures might fall where. So an example of a high-risk procedure might be like a cardiac surgery, a moderate procedure might be a colonoscopy, and a minimal bleed risk procedure might be something like a minor dental procedure. Our talk today won't really include minimal risk procedures because we usually don't hold anticoagulation and therefore don't need to bridge for these procedures. Looking at the other side of our balance, we also see that patients in the periop setting have an increased thromboembolic risk, and this can be explained by Verkau's triad. So our patients, um, because of the invasive surgical process, have damage to their endothelial tissue and have an induced hypercoagulable state. After surgery, patients are often also immobile, and so they have blood flow stasis there. And these factors combined result in acutely increased thrombotic risk. Besides this acute risk, also we have to recall a patient's baseline thromboembolic conditions. So these patients are anticoagulated in the first place because they've got some kind of comorbidity that warrants anticoagulation, and that's something we still have to consider in the periop setting. So when we have these patients here with increased thromboembolic risk and increased bleed risk in the operative setting, what is the outcome that we're really concerned about for them? What we're really looking at is our major bleeding and our major thromboembolic outcomes. So there's no standardized definition for what these constitute, but generally we're thinking of our major bleeding as bleeding that's fatal, occurring in a critical area, or severe enough to require a transfusion. On the other end, for our major thromboembolic outcomes, we're thinking of things like our stroke, our systemic embolisms, and our cardiovascular deaths. So while all of these clinical sequelae are undesirable, when we think of our morbidity and mortality, we really are more concerned about our major thromboembolic risks. And these are the outcomes that we most want to avoid in our patients. And because of the way this balance tilts, we're sometimes willing to accept some bleed risk, such as that that we might get from bridging, with the trade-off of decreasing thromboembolic risk and reducing the risk of having these really clinically severe consequences. We do have to consider, though, that the way that this balance tilts really differs for different patients. Our patients we'll discuss today will have baseline thromboembolic disease states that have innately different levels of risk. And so how this balance tilts and whether or not it's worth it to bridge in a patient will really have to be decided on a patient case-by-case -case basis. We'll look today at three baseline thromboembolic disease states, which are atrial fibrillation, venous thromboembolism, and mechanical heart valves. And we'll look at the evidence for bridging in each one to decide how to apply it to a patient. This leads us to our next assessment question. So which of the following statements best describes bleeding and thromboembolic risk in the perioperative setting? So go ahead and open back up your poll everywhere. Great, so I agree with the majority of the responses here, which look at C as our correct answer. So in the periop setting, we have increased bleed risk because of the invasive surgical procedure, as well as increased thromboembolic risk because of the endothelial damage, the hypercoagulable state, and the patient immobility. The other answers are incorrect because they suggest either decreased thromboembolic risk and or decreased bleed risk, which we don't see in the perioperative setting. So we're going to talk now about our first major thromboembolic disease state, which is non-valvular atrial fibrillation or AFib. When we think about where thromboembolic risk comes from in AFib, we return back to Verkhaus triad and we can explain it in this way. Patients who have chronic AFib have endothelial dysfunction and increased production rates of hypercoagulable factors. Most importantly, though, these patients have abnormal blood flow because the fibrillating heart doesn't have that same contracted or coordinated contractility that we would see in non-AFib patients. 
What we're most concerned about in AFib is formation of a thrombus in the left atrial appendage. So when you have this turbulent non-laminar blood flow, a clot can form in the left atrial appendage. And our concern is if that clot embolizes and goes to the rest of the body, which can cause a cardioembolic stroke. That stroke is really our major concern when we talk about thromboembolic outcomes in AFib, because we know that stroke has very high morbidity and mortality, with over 5 million deaths per year, leaving around half of survivors chronically disabled. And so when we consider whether or not to bridge an AFib, we have to be cognizant that our thromboembolic outcome has this high morbidity and mortality and consider what bleed risk trade-off we're willing to accept. Looking at what the guidelines say for this disease state, they recommend against heparin bridging for patients with AFib. But on, there seems to be this caveat guideline of statement eight which suggests that patients who are high risk for thromboembolism should receive heparin bridging. So to really reconcile the difference in these statements, we have to ask ourselves who our high risk thromboembolic AFib patients would be. To stratify risk in AFib, we have really well validated clinical scores, and those are our CHAD score and our CHADS FAST score. The CHADS-VAS score is the more um, novel way and the better validated scoring system, but the CHADS score was used in a lot of our bridging literature, so it's important to understand both of those. CHADS and CHADS-VAS look at patient-specific comorbidities, their age and their sex, and uses that to calculate what an annual stroke rate might be for these patients. One important thing to note here is that the stroke rate is annual. And so when we're talking about risk over the periop period of maybe five to 10 days, these numbers are not going to look exactly the same. There's no validated way to officially extrapolate that risk from an annual rate to a more daily rate, but we know overall those numbers are going to look pretty low if you look at it from a day-to-day -day rate. So I want to remind us again why we consider bridging for these numerically lower chance outcomes is because of that high morbidity and mortality potential of a stroke. When we think now about how to, how to bridge in these high-risk AFib patients, we want to turn to the literature and see if we have any evidence for bridging in those patients. With our AFib literature, we're going to review two randomized controlled trials that looked at bridging and not bridging in patients with atrial fibrillation. Our first one will be our bridge trial. So this was an RCT of almost 2,000 patients who had AFib and at least one CHADS factor. A key thing to note here is that our baseline population of this trial only had an average CHAD score of 2.3, which correlates to a CHADS FASC of around 4. And so these numbers are really on the lower end of our score, meaning that our patients at baseline had lower thromboembolic risk in this trial. Other notable things are that the trial excluded patients with mechanical heart valves, patients who'd had a major thromboembolic outcome in the past 12 weeks, and patients who had a higher bleed risk. Of the patients remaining, half of them received bridging with deltaparin, half received placebo, and then the authors looked at thromboembolic and bleeding rates at 30 days. Looking at our outcomes here, the bridge trial indicates that bridging did not have an effect on major thromboembolic risk, but it did significantly increase our major bleeding risk. And so this seems to indicate that bridging doesn't provide the benefit we might expect, but it does cause harm, and that would make us think that we should not bridge in our AFib patients. I want to remind us, though, of the main limitation of this trial, which is that the baseline population had a CHAD score of around 2. So these are lower thromboembolic risk patients, and we don't know whether these results would still apply to patients with higher CHAD scores. 
Looking at our second RCT for patients with AFib, this is a similar setup trial with around 1,500 patients who had AFib or mechanical valves. The majority had just AFib, and we'll focus on these populate this population. And we see here that their baseline CHAD score also had a mean of 2.4. So just like our bridge trial population, these are lower thromboembolic risk patients with only a small minority having those higher CHAD scores. Again, this trial excluded patients with higher bleed risk, and the remaining the patients got either doctoparin or placebo and looked at outcomes at 90 days. So looking at our outcomes from the PERIOP2 trial, we see that bridging did not have an effect on major thromboembolic risk, and it also did not have a significant effect on our major bleed risk. And so once again, this trial would seem to indicate that bridging doesn't confer that benefit, although it doesn't show the increased bleed risk like the bridge trial did. The main takeaway here is, once again, our CHADS-VAS score was an average of 2.4, so we don't know if these results would apply in higher thromboembolic risk patients. When we look at our AFib literature as a whole, we see that we see these similar trends that bridging in AFib does not seem to affect thromboembolic rates, but it might increase or not affect bleed rates. And this is likely why our CHESS guidelines recommend against bridging in our patients with AFib. This also is pretty strong evidence because we have two randomized controlled trials, and this is likely why the CHESS guidelines categorize their recommendation as one that is strong with moderate certainty. As we've discussed, though, the major limitation is the low CHAD score that we had in these patient populations. And so I would generally agree with the guidelines rule of thumb to not bridge an AFib patients, but I would consider bridging for an AFib patient that has a CHAD score of three or more or a CHADS VASC of five or more, because these are the patients who weren't well represented in our data. I'd also consider bridging if a patient had had a recent major thromboembolic event, because these patients would be at acutely higher risk and they were also excluded from the bridge trial. And finally, if a patient had comorbid thromboembolic conditions, that's always a different separate consideration because these trials were really looking at AFib in isolation. So that wraps up our evidence for AFib. We're gonna turn now to our next thromboembolic state, which is venous thromboembolism or VTE. When we think about where thromboembolic risk in VTE comes from, we see that our etiologies can look really diverse, unlike AFib where we really had that cardioembolic stroke risk. For VTEs, we can have endothelial damage to a patient that's induced by surgery or trauma or maybe placement of a central line. Patients can also experience blood flow stasis because of immobility in the acute illness setting or maybe from uh, local stagnant blood flow around a central line. And finally, patients may have a hypercoagulable state due to this acute illness setting or underlying conditions like malignancy or thrombophilias. So then when we consider the outcomes of a VTE and how clinically severe they are, these etiologies also, or these outcomes also look very diverse because the etiologies are so diverse. The outcomes of a VTE and the severity can range from a subclinical DVT that we might find incidentally to something like a massive PE that could cause a code in a patient. And so overall, we, we recognize that this is a much more heterogeneous disease state than our AFib. As a whole, mortality recurrent VTE ranges from 5 to 13%, but this can really have outliers at either end. And so when we decide whether or not we want to bridge in a patient with VTE, it's really a gray area and requires us to consider the patient's specific risk factors and what VTE presentation they've had in the past so we understand what their thromboembolic risk is. 
The CHESS guidelines recommend that patients who are receiving warfarin for VTE should not receive heparin bridging. But once again, we come back to this caveat statement eight that says for patients who have high risk for thromboembolism, they should receive heparin bridging. So we have to ask ourselves now, who of the VTE population would be considered high risk for a recurrent VTE? When I consider risk stratification for VTEs, I'm looking at three main factors, which are recency, etiology, and recurrence. For a patient who's had a VTE in the past three months, I consider them high risk for recurrence because the underlying prothrombotic process likely isn't resolved yet, and it might happen again. For a patient who's had a VTE in the past three to 12 months, I'd consider that a more moderate risk, and someone with a VTE over a year ago would be low risk. Considering our etiologies, for a patient who's had an unprovoked VTE, I would consider them still high risk because we don't know what caused this in the first place and may not have addressed that underlying cause. On the other hand, if a patient had a provoked cause, but we haven't resolved that yet, then I'd consider them high risk if that etiology itself is high risk, such as a severe thrombophilia, but I'd consider them moderate risk if it's a less severe etiology. And I would consider the patient low risk if the VTE had been provoked, but the underlying cause is now resolved. And finally, if a patient has had multiple recurrences in the past, I consider them to be high risk for recurrence in the future, and maybe just one or two recurrences would categorize them as moderate risk. So we have the stratification of who our high-risk VTE patients might be. We'll look now at the VTE bridging literature to see whether or not these high-risk patients were assessed and what their outcomes were for bridging. With our VTE literature, unfortunately, it's not like our AFib literature where we've got this strong randomized data. All of our literature for VTE is actually observational in nature, and so we have a lower quality of evidence for this disease state. The trials, or sorry, the clinical guidelines rely heavily on this systematic review by Baumgartner and his colleagues, but this review, although it was well designed, was really limited by the input of the, of the observational data that we have, so I want you to keep that in mind as we go through this. Baumgartner and colleagues looked at studies that included at least 10 patients who were taking warfarin for VTE. And this cutoff of 10 patients is not very stringent. So as a result, over a third of the patients in this systematic review had a VTE population of less than 20%. And so we really start to question the validity of the data when we're looking at these small subpopulations of trials. Baumgartner studied 28 studies, and out of those, only eight of them were dual-arm studies that compared bridging with no bridging. We're going to look at those two studies that were dual-arm that had the highest sample size, which were the Sjogren study and the Clark study, and look at our VTE outcomes. So we'll start off with our Clark study, which, are, which is a retrospective cohort study of around 1,800 procedures in patients who are taking warfarin for VTE. Our authors here did exclude patients who are on warfarin for other indications, so we end up with a pretty pure VTE population. This was an observational study, and so patients weren't randomized, so we have to consider the baseline characteristics of our population and how things may have differed between our groups. When we look at our baseline, we see that bridged patients were more likely to have a history of a recurrent VTE. Bridge patients were also more likely to have a high risk for a current VTE, which was defined as having had a VTE in the past three months, so that really acute presentation. And finally, our bridge patients were also more likely to have severe thrombophilia. So what this table is showing us is that at baseline, before we even make any intervention, our bridge patients may have a higher thromboembolic risk. 
we're also seeing that our high-risk patients who are of the most clinical interest are really underrepresented in this study. And so we don't know how much we can apply our outcomes to this patient population. Looking at Clark's results, they found that bridged patients Bridge patients had a higher risk of clinically relevant bleeding, and although this outcome looked at both major bleeding as well as more minor bleeding that we typically wouldn't consider as much in our, our bleed risk clot balance, um, a secondary endpoint of major bleeding also correlated and showed a higher bleed risk in our patients who were bridged. Looking at our risk stratification, we can also see that for our moderate and low risk patients, we saw the same increased bleeding risk, but for our high risk patients, we didn't see that trend. We can't really conclude much off of this knowing how small our high risk population data was though, or how low the population was here. Looking at our outcomes for the thromboembolic side of things, we see that there was no difference in recurrent BTE between our bridged group and our non-bridged group. And so Clark's study seems to indicate that bridging increases the rates of major bleeding and doesn't affect the rates of recurrent thromboembolism. And that would suggest that we shouldn't bridge in our VTE patients. But once again, we have to consider the limitations of this evidence, remembering that our bridge patients in this study had higher thromboembolic risk at baseline, and that's going to compound the data and the balance we see here. This study also leaves us with some unanswered questions about our high-risk VTE patients, because recall that they were really underrepresented in this trial, and we can't necessarily apply these conclusions to them. Let's look now at our other major bridging trial in VTE, which was the Sjogren study. This was a registry study of around 14,000 patients who were on warfarin and had it interrupted for a procedure. And of those, 1,300 patients were taking it for VTE and did receive heparin bridging. The author's propensity matched these 1,300 patients to non-bridged VTE patients who are in that registry. And so we ended up with around 1,300 bridged VTE patients who were matched to 1,300 non-bridged VTE patients. Looking at some baseline characteristics here, we see that in both, uh, both populations, there was an AFib comorbidity of around 5.4%. And this is low as you'd expect because this is a primary VTE population. However, the authors, when they were propensity matching these groups together and trying to match up thromboembolic risk, they did so by using CHADS-VASC factors. And CHADS-VASC is really only validated to assess risk in AFib, not in VTE, which was our population here. So even though these CHADS-VASC scores are the same between our two groups here, we can't say for sure whether or not they truly had the same thromboembolic risk because there could be factors that weren't considered and matched in this trial. Finally, we see that our bridge patients had higher usage of antiplatelets, and this may have increased their bleed risk relative to the non-bridged group. Looking at the outcomes of the Sjogren study, they found that bridging increased bleeding and did not statistically significantly increase thromboembolism, although rates were numerically higher. And so again, the study kind of correlates with the same results as our Clark study, showing this increased harm with bridging without having a thromboembolic benefit. But once again, we have to recall the limitations of the study, remembering that our bridge group had higher use of antiplatelets, which might have affected our bleed risk, and knowing that our groups, although the authors tried to propensity match them, may not have been truly balanced because we don't know what factors were important for this population and don't have a full understanding. Once again, this trial also leaves us with unanswered questions regarding our high-risk VTE patients. The authors didn't report on the recency, the recurrence, or the etiology of the VTEs in this population, so we're not able to stratify the risk of these patients and see whether or not we'd apply, we'd consider them high risk for VTE. 
So when we consider our VTE data as a whole, um, we see that we have a weak quality of evidence, but it points to the same direction where bridging seems to increase our bleed risk, but not really affect our rates of thromboembolisms. And this is likely why the guidelines recommend against bridging in patients who have VTE. That said, though, we know our quality of evidence is weaker overall for this population with only observational data and nothing randomized. And this is why our, our guidelines qualify this as a conditional recommendation with very low certainty. The other major concern of our studies that we've discussed is that they don't include very many high-risk participants or stratify their VTE risk. And so as clinicians, when we're considering these high-risk VTE patients as the ones we might consider bridging in, we don't really have literature to back up these outcomes and see whether or not they play out in clinical practice. So with my approach to bridging patients in VTE, I would modify the approach suggested in the guidelines, and I might have a baseline rule of thumb of do not bridge in VTE, but I would consider bridging for patients who I consider high risk for VTE recurrence. And those would be looking at those factors we discussed earlier. So patients who had a VTE within the past three months and are still in that acute thrombotic state, patients who have had multiple recurrences in the past, and patients who have had an unprovoked or unresolved etiology for their VTE. Once again, we also were looking at a pure VTE population, so we can't extend these results to comorbid thromboembolic conditions, and patients with multiple conditions would warrant further consideration of whether or not to bridge. So this will bring us to our next audience assessment question. So which of the following statements is true regarding the literature for bridging in AFib and VTE? Great, so I agree with the majority of the responses here, which is answer A, the majority of our trials associated bridging with increased bleed risk for both AFib and VTE. Option B is incorrect because most studies showed that we had no change in our thromboembolic risk. Option C is incorrect because most patients in our AFib trials had chats fast less than five, which is our major limitation. And option D is incorrect because for our VTE literature, we only have observational data and no randomized trials. So we're going to look at our final thromboembolic state today and look at bridging in mechanical valves. For a lot of patients who have valvular heart disease will require an artificial valve replacement to replace their diseased valve. When we implant this artificial valve, the body recognizes it as a foreign substance and can mount a thrombogenic response against it. And this response is why we have thromboembolic risk when we implant an artificial valve. For our thromboembolic risk, the major outcome we're concerned about with our valves is formation of a valve thrombus. And this is the formation of a clot on the valve itself, which can impair the valve's function, um, lead to decreased blood flow across that valve, and potentially also cause a systemic thromboembolism. Although the rate of valve thrombus is somewhat rare, with only around 1% per patient year, Valve thrombus has a very high morbidity and mortality. And so this is a thromboembolic outcome that we really want to avoid and might consider accepting some bleeding risk by bridging in order to avoid. That, that said though, when we consider thromboembolic risk in our patients with artificial valves, not all valves are created equal. And we really have to consider how we risk stratify for patients with different valves and assess what their risk of that valve thrombus would be. To risk stratify with our valves, I want to consider four main factors, who, what, where, and when for our mechanical valves. For our who, I'm really asking who are these patients who have the valves and what relevant comorbidities do they have? The main comorbidity that I would consider to increase risk with mechanical valves is low cardiac output. 
And this is because patients with this lower cardiac output and decreased ejection fraction have lower blood flow and less washout of that valve. And so it's easier for a thrombus to form on that valve and lead to those negative consequences. This means that our patients with conditions like um, heart failure and other low output states would be at increased risk of clot if they also have a valve. For what, we're really asking ourselves, what is the valve made of? Valve material can be made out of mechanical materials such as metal or bioprosthetic materials like animal tissue. And the body really reacts more, uh, has thr higher thrombogenic risk with a mechanical material. We see two to three times higher rates of thrombosis with mechanical valves and bioprosthetics. So we know that that is a higher risk as well. In coming slides, we'll look at what valve model, where the valve was placed and when the valve was placed to stratify our risk. So thinking of what valve model we have, this is one of the most important considerations when you have a patient with a mechanical valve. Ever since we started implanting mechanical valves in the 60s, we progressed through these three different iterations of valve models. So we started off with a ball and cage valve model. This progressed to a tilting disc model, and then was the production of a bileaflet model, which is our newest and most recent model of valve technology. As we progress through these valve models, the overall trend we see is improving hemodynamics as blood flow across these valves and the physiological design of these valves improves and is better able to mimic our natural cardiac blood flow. We're also seeing decreased thrombogenicity across these valve models as people are using decreasing thromboembolic materials to make the valve itself. And so the bileaflet valve, our most recent valve model, really represents the least thrombogenic risk valve. And it has some key characteristics that allow it to have that decreased risk. One major factor to consider is that the bileaflet valve has a regurgitant flow. And so that means that every time during diastole, there's regurgitant flow across the bileaflet valve and it's washed with each heartbeat. This can help wash away any microthromboemboli that might've formed on that valve, resulting in a decreased clot risk for our bileaflets. Bileaflet valves have also progressed from being made of metal, which is a more thrombogenic substance, to pyrolytic carbon, which is less thrombogenic to the body. And so because of these factors, we see a much decreased thrombogenic um, rates with bileaflet valves compared to our older model. And the rates are so superior that the ball and cage and tilting disc models have actually been withdrawn from the market. I want you to keep the year of 2009 in your mind as a quick clinical guideline, because we know that after 2009, any valves that are implanted in our patients are going to be our bileaflet valves, our lower risk valves. And so this can help us do a quick assessment of a patient and think about what their risk might be. We have to remember though, that patients who are presenting today might've had a valve implanted before 2009. And in that case, we would have to consider whether or not it's an older valve model with higher thromboembolic risk. So that's the what of our valves. We're gonna look now at the where when we're talking about valve risk. Where refers to where in the heart the valve is placed. And the major two positions are the aortic valve and the mitral valve. Blood flow is really different at these positions. And so with our aortic valve, we're having active contraction of blood from the left ventricle flowing across the aortic valve into systemic circulation. This represents a really high flow and active pumping blood flow. And so the aortic valve blood flow is characterized by this very high pressure situation. On the other hand, when we look at flow across our mitral valve, 80% of, of the blood flow across the mitral valve is passive flow that occurs during diastole. So blood flow here is much more stagnant when we compare it to our aortic valve. And as a result, mitral valve thrombotic rates are two to three times more frequent than that that we see in our aortic valves. 
We'll look now at the when of our mechanical valves. So we really see an increased risk when we have the first three months after the valve surgery. And this can be explained again by Virchow's triad. So in the first period, in the initial period after a valve surgery, you have endothelial damage from the incision into the cardiac tissue, and the patient is in this hypercoag hypercoagulable state. After this acute period, though, the sutures are healing, the cardiac tissue is healing, and we don't have this increased risk after the first three months. So just to quickly recap our risk in mechanical valves, we have our who, what, where, and when. For WHO, we know patients with lower cardiac output have that decreased flow and washout across their valve. For a WHAT, we know that mechanical valves have higher thrombogenic risk than bioprosthetic, and we know that our bi-leaflet model is the, is the best one with the least thrombogenic risk. We know that where the valve placed matters, with aortic valves having lower risk because of the more rapid blood flow, and we know that valves that were placed in the last three months have higher risk because of that endothelial dysfunction and hypercoagulability we see after the surgery. So knowing now what our risk in mechanical valves look like, we have to consider in these patients would we consider bridging if we're holding their anticoagulation. The guidelines recommend that for patients with mechanical heart valves, heparin bridging should not be used. And this 2022 iteration of the guidelines is really the first time that we have such a definitive statement about mechanical valves. Once again, though, we've got this caveat statement that patients who are high risk for thromboembolism should get heparin bridging. So we have some idea thinking about our who, what, where, and when, who would be high risk who have mechanical valves. And so let's turn to the literature and see whether those high risk patients were assessed and what our outcomes looked like. For the level of evidence we have for our mechanical valve patients, it's unfortunately similar to our VTE evidence where the large majority of it is observational in nature and overall our quality is limited. We'll start off with this meta-analysis by Bontinus and his colleagues, which looked at 15 studies of patients who had mechanical heart valves undergoing a surgery, and there was no standardized bridging regimen. Different trials used different ones. Some key baseline characteristics to consider here are that of these 15 studies, only one was a randomized controlled trial, and only four studies actually compared outcomes in bridge groups versus non-bridge groups. The majority of our patients had aortic valves, which we know are going to be lower risk here, and then only 50% of patients had major operations, which would be operations that actually require us to hold our anticoagulation and possibly bridge. Looking at the outcomes here, Bontinus found that bridging increased the rate of overall bleeding. But when we consider overall bleeding, this included both major and minor bleeding. For considering our bleed clot risk, knowing how severe our thromboembolic risk can be with a valve thrombus, we're really more concerned about major bleeding when we consider how the scale tilts for these patients. And so we see that an outcome of major bleeding in this trial was not statistically significant, although it did trend very close towards that and showed the same overall trend that bridging might increase bleed risk. The authors also found that thromboembolic risk was not changed between our patients, and so bridging didn't affect this. Overall, this trial would suggest that bridging has no effect on thromboembolic risk, but it may increase overall bleeding and doesn't significantly increase our major bleeding. Thinking about how we can apply the results to our patients, we again have to remember the limitations of this evidence. So most of it is observational in nature, and we can see from the long effect bars here that it was quite heterogeneous data that we looked at. 
This question, this um, study also leaves us with some unanswered questions regarding our specific high-risk mechanical valve patients. Because the study didn't report on what valve model patients had, so we don't have that data. And we also know most of our patients here had aortic valves, which would be considered lower risk. And so we still don't really know how high-risk patients would be affected here. We'll look now at our second piece of mechanical valve literature, which is the PERIOP2 trial. And this should look familiar because this was our RCT we looked at for AFib. We'll be focusing now on, uh, now on the subpopulation of patients who had mechanical valves, which is just 21% of the 1,500 patients in this trial. Out of these valve patients, around half had a mitral valve and a little over half had an aortic valve. And a handful of patients at baseline had disease states that would decrease their cardiac output, which we know is a risk factor for increased valve thrombogenicity. This study did not report on what valve model was used or how recently the valve was implanted, so we're not able to assess those risk factors. The study did exclude patients who had multiple mechanical valves, or star Edwards, also known as ball and cage valve. Of the patients who were left, they were randomized to receive daltoparin bridging or placebo, and we looked at our thromboembolic and our bleeding outcomes. Looking at those outcomes specifically in our mechanical valve subpopulation, we see that bridging seems to have no effect on thromboembolic risk and also doesn't seem to affect our bleed risk. But the main limitation of this data is that it's, our study was not powered to look at outcomes in this small 21% subpopulation. And if you look at how low these event rates are for both our thromboembolic and our bleeding outcomes, it's possible that there could have been significant differences between the groups that we just weren't powered to look at in this study. And so this trial isn't really able to answer our questions or give us strong evidence. This trial also doesn't answer our questions about high-risk mechanical valve patients because we don't have enough data about what valve model it was or how recently the valve was implanted. So when we consider our mechanical valve data, we see that uh, both trials we looked at have the same overall trend where bridging seems to not affect thromboembolic risk, and it also doesn't seem to affect major bleeding risk. And this is likely why our CHESS guidelines recommend that patients with mechanical valves should not be bridged. But we have to consider the limitations of the evidence here. We know that a lot of our data is observational, and even our one randomized trial, we're just looking at a subpopulation that wasn't powered to assess those outcomes. And so that's why the CHESS guidelines call this a conditional recommendation with very low certainty. In my practice, when I decide whether or not to bridge a patient with a mechanical valve, I think it's a lot more complex than having one blanket statement of do bridge unless or don't bridge unless, because we talked about how many different factors can affect our thromboembolic risk in patients with mechanical valves. We also know how severe the, the risk or the morbidity and mortality of a valve thrombus can be. And so for that, I would err more on the side of caution and aim towards bridging my patients. However, I would consider not bridging only in patients I would think of as lower risk. So these would be patients with an aortic bileaflet valve that was implanted over three months ago and patients who have normal cardiac output. So those are patients who kind of check off all of the lowest categories for our who, our what, our where, and our when. I'd also consider bridging unless the patient has no comorbid thromboembolic conditions, because once again, when we start mixing different disease states, we don't have good literature and we haven't talked about how to assess those today. So we're going to end our presentation today by bridging the gap and looking at a high-level overview of our three thromboembolic disease states. When we consider whether or not to bridge an AFib, I would use this mental algorithm and ask first whether the patient has had a major thromboembolic event, like a stroke or embolism, in the past three months. If they have in the past three months, I would bridge them because I would still consider them at high acute risk, 
And also remember that the bridge trial excluded those patients, so we don't have good data in them. If the patient has had this thromboembolic outcome, but it's been more than three months, I might consider bridging because they've proven themselves high risk in the past, but this would really be a patient-specific consideration of how they're presenting currently. If the patient hasn't had that outcome before, I'd then ask what their CHADS fast score is. If it's one to four, I would not bridge in these patients because we have randomized controlled evidence that states that this may increase bleed risk without providing thromboembolic benefit in these patients. However, if their CHADS VAS score is five or more, I'd consider bridging because we don't have literature that says that we don't have, we don't have good literature for patients with those higher thromboembolic risks. And the higher the score, the more I would be inclined to bridge. Looking at our VTE summary here, the first question I'd ask when bridging in a VTE patient is whether or not they've had a VTE in the past three months. So looking at that recency, if, they've if they have, I would bridge because I would consider them to still be at an acutely increased risk. If not, I'd then look into their history of recurrence. And if they've had recurrences in the past, I'd consider bridging because they've shown themselves to have that and they might be at higher risk of continued recurrences. If not, I'd then look at whether or not the patient's VTE was provoked or unprovoked. So a patient who had an unprovoked VTE or one that was provoked but has an ongoing risk factor, I'd consider bridging because those patients might be moderate or high risk. But a patient whose VTE was provoked and the cause now resolved, I wouldn't bridge in because those patients looking at this factor and everything upstream in our flowchart would be considered low risk for VTE recurrence. Finally, we'll take a look at our mechanical valve patients. So the first thing I would ask to narrow our decision is whether the valve was implanted in the past three months. If it was, that's an automatic bridge for me because we know that in those first three months, we still have that acutely increased risk from the endothelial damage and the hypercoagulability that these patients have. If not, I would next inquire about the valve location. So if the valve is in the mitral position, I would bridge because we know that this is a lower flow area and patients with mitral valves have increased thrombotic risk. If it's in the aortic position, that's lower risk, and then I would want to stratify more by asking what model of valve the patient has. If the patient has an older valve model, like our ball and cage or tilting disc, I would want to bridge because we really did see higher thromboembolic rates in those patients because we know that those valve models were not as advanced as what we have today. On the other hand, if a patient has a bileaflet valve, which we know is our lower risk model and something where technology has really advanced, I would then want to consider what the patient's cardiac output is. If the output is reduced, I might consider bridging because we know that that will reduce the wash and the blood flow across the valve and increase risk for thrombus. But if the patient had normal cardiac output and they're still checking all of these upstream boxes of being a low risk patient, I would be comfortable not bridging in those patients um, in this case. So let's return all the way back to the beginning of this presentation when I introduce this case to you and see if responses have changed. So as a reminder, this is our 67-year-old female. She has a history of mechanical bileaflet aortic valve replacement in 2013, hypertension, and type 2 diabetes. She's going to hold her warfarin, so I want you to decide whether or not this patient should be bridged or not. So please click on the arrow where you think is most appropriate. So we're seeing a trend from our first time we had kind of responses all over the map, and now it looks like people are leaning more towards not bridging. And I would agree with that assessment, even though we don't necessarily have literature that backs this up. For this patient, I wouldn't bridge because she kind of checks off all of our criteria for a lower risk mechanical valve, given those who, what, where, and when factors. So great job for recognizing that. 
So just to wrap up our high points from this presentation, we discussed that we have increased bleeding and thromboembolic risk in the periop setting. We know that bridging might decrease our thromboembolic risk, but might also not affect it, but we're pretty sure that it does increase our bleed risk. We know that when we look at our bridging literature and our three main disease states, our quality is very variable and limited. And so we can't just rely on what literature and guidelines say. We really have to look at the patient in front of us and balance their specific risk factors to decide whether or not we should be bridging or not. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.